This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the 24-7 National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And this is DBT and Me. Hi, everybody. So today's a little bit different than usual, not going to lie. Um, so this would normally be where Kate would chime in and you guys would hear her in the background saying hello in the way that she does. Um, Kate's actually not here today. She's okay. Everything is fine. Um. She just unfortunately had to have her gallbladder removed a couple days ago. So today is Tuesday when we are recording this, and she just had to have her gallbladder out on Sunday. So she is resting. She is doing well. But she was not up to being here today to record, and we wanted to move forward with getting an episode out to you guys anyways. Here's the good news, though. Kate is not here But I have a special guest guest with us. Whoa, tripped over my words there. Um, A special guest here, and his name is Luke. So Luke is here to um, tell us all about himself, the wonderful work that he's doing with recovery in the UK. Um, But to tell you guys a little bit about him, and then Luke, I'll let you take it from there with introducing yourself. Um, But, you know, Luke lost his mom, Lisa, to drugs when he was 10 years old. And so since that time, he has gone from a place where he himself was struggling with addiction to now being a recovery counselor. So he runs a program called Lisa Inside Addiction, and that program provides online recovery and helps people who are feeling stuck in addiction themselves to come out of that and get to a better place. Um, So Luke, I'm going to turn it over to you. We'd love to hear more about your story and how you've got from where you were then to where you are now. Okay, perfect. Um, And like you said, the name of the company is called Lisa Inside Addiction, and that's named after my mum. Her name was Lisa. Um, So I thought as I'm creating the company in recovery, um, I would name it after her. And I guess my journey starts, you know, when I was born, in a sense. My mum, she was um, a drug addict, and that kind of meant that I was born prematurely at 26 weeks. And I weighed as much as a bag of sugar, and in the UK, that's a pound. Um, And my head was the size of a tennis ball. Um, So I was a little diddy, cute baby. And, um, yeah, growing up uh, sort of with my mum, she was drinking, and that was difficult, you know, growing up as a young kid. And she was in and out of prison um, and she was in and out of rehab. So as I was growing up, it was difficult. And I had two brothers and my brothers were amazing, but they were older brothers and I had my dad as well. So where my mum was kind of um, had her addiction going on and was in the chaos and the madness, um, it was difficult to have room for my emotions because of my brothers. Whenever I would show emotions, we would just kind of have a fight or we'd just sort of beat each other up. And that was just kind of my early foundation years. There wasn't really any emotional regulation, which I've learned from DBT. Um, there was literally, the emotional reg- regulation was just fighting, beating each other up, which isn't regulating emotions at all. Um, and that was just how I grew up, really. That's all I knew. Don't show emotions. And if you do, it has to be anger and there has to kind of be those fighting. And an example of this was sort of reinforced by my dad when I fell off my bike when I was a kid. I tried to do like some trick and I did a somersault instead uh, accidentally. And (laughs) I I landed badly on my shoulder and I called my dad and he was at work and I said, Dad, can you come pick me up? I hurt my shoulder. And he was like, no, son, you're all right. Just ride home. And they're probably kind of words echoed by a lot of dads just kind of come on, kid, get on with it. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to sort of get on with it. Um, I just showed the strength and not kind of 
any sort of weakness and yeah I just sort of powered on and kept going and rode my bike home um, and that was just the sort of things I grew up with and they're not good or bad it was just kind of my life and I didn't really understand what that meant or what that how that echoed into my future until much later on in life but as I kind of grew up um, I you know got bullied in school because I was premature and that was difficult you know going through that childhood and I guess as I look back over my story and the history of my life I just sort of recognize all these pieces of the puzzle and how they kind of layered on top of each other and mm. as I was reaching the age of around 10 um, or when I reached the age of 10 that was when my mum passed away her drinking just got so bad that you know everything just kind of failed by that point and then you know based on the foundation of how I learned or didn't learn to regulate my emotions at that point when my mum died I just shut everything down I just ripped out anything that connected my head to my heart and just buried any feelings deep in the valley of my soul never to be found again it was just everything shut down and that was just the way life was at that point I didn't know any different I couldn't handle that emotional intensity I guess it was like a crisis situation I didn't have the skills or tools to deal with that um, and yeah that's just the process that I went through and then as I went to school it was a similar timeline that I started drinking and friends were smoking fags before school and I started smoking fags and weed and you know having two older brothers um, and all that older crowd that was around me as well sort of made me grow up a bit faster and being introduced to drugs at an early age during school um, and yeah along with the bullying it just kind of made sense and I guess this was just kind of how my psychological roadmap was just being built in the early days just from all of these experiences and only have I learned what all of these mean in hindsight when I look back in therapy and you know untangled the mesh of my emotions but as I sort of came to the point where I left school and my blueprint was formed where I would you know experience emotions and then do drugs and drink because I didn't know how to regulate them I went on to run my own business and as I ran my own business, um, things just got more stressful. You know, the more employees I had, the more stressful things got. So then the more drugs I did because I didn't know how to regulate my emotions. I didn't know how to set boundaries. As an adult child of an alcoholic, I was very much a people pleaser. So I used to please all my customers. And I guess over time I learned how my internal blueprint echoed through my business and my career and you know, not being able to set boundaries, not being able to regulate my emotions, not having mindfulness skills, all just had an impact because I didn't really have a mental foundation. And then as I kept, you know, running from my problems and burying my head in the sand because I just didn't have the tools, I moved out into my own flat and, you know, kept growing the business and growing and driving around in the Mercedes and all that kind of stuff. But then I got to a point when it was all just getting too much. The business was losing money, um, and it just got to a point where enough was enough I just couldn't cope and things just really went downhill fast and I had to move out of my flat overlooking the lovely sea into a house share and I just kept doing drugs and slowly lost the business by not checking in with clients and just f falling through my hands and again I still was just based on this sort of um, yeah foundation of not being able to manage my emotions and then it got to a point where I was sitting on a park bench uh, using drugs which used to be a bench that was around the corner from my house share because I didn't want to use drugs in the house because I knew I'd get kicked out so I still had I was still functioning enough not to go that bad but um, I definitely was using drugs and I was calling around all my friends trying to get them to lend me money because I didn't have any money at this point. I was over £16,000 in debt from business and everything. Um, and, you know, I just remembered going through all of my friends, trying to call them all, and they didn't answer and I couldn't get out of them uh, any money out of them to buy drugs. But I got to one friend that I'll never forget, but he was the friend I didn't want to ring because I knew he knew the rap about addiction and building businesses and all that kind of stuff. But I finally didn't have any other way out. So I called him and tried to ask him for money. And I just remember him saying to me, Luke, you're a crack addict. 
And although I'd never ever smoked crack or used crack at that point, it just kind of burst my whole veil of denial where I thought I'll never be like my mum, I'll never drink, I'll never be an addict. The whole time, that's exactly what I'd become. And that one comment kind of pierced through my denial and forced me to, you know, understand, wait a minute, I am heading towards death just like my mum. And if something doesn't change, then I'll be at, then I'll just end up just dead from using drugs exactly the same as her. So that got me to the point where I booked my first therapy session um, and I didn't know about DBT therapy or anything at this point, so I just booked, or any type of therapy for that matter, I just booked a therapist, whatever that meant. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as I kind of walked into my first therapy session, you know, I hadn't dealt with any of these emotions yet, so I really believed that I would kind of die or spontaneously combust or something from bringing up all of these emotions I'd never felt before. And because I just suppressed all of these emotions, I didn't know what, what would happen. And it took a lot of courage to, you know, build up the um, courage, really, and deal with the um, uncertainty and anxiety of self-discovery. But as the days sort of turned into months, I read over 100 books about mi- uh, mindfulness and the mind and learned psycho- psychoeducational information I needed to upgrade my thinking. I learned about meditation and I started meditating and understanding how my cognitive thoughts were impacting my behavior and what that meant and how I could change my behavior and I watched loads of podcasts like I'm on now and mm-hmm. YouTube videos um, and went to seminars and all that kind of stuff but I kept going back to therapy to untangle that mess of my emotions and digging deep and as sort of time went on I started to understand the impact of my mum's actions and my traumatic development and how that kind of broken inner child was living in me as an adult. And I gained an understanding of what that meant. And as I started to heal and the years went on, I started to see patterns emerging. And when I look back at my life, I noticed four kind of main areas that I'd worked on. And they were my mind and what was happening with my thinking, how I deal with cravings, all that kind of stuff. Um, How could I deal with my relationships and understand how I'm relating to others and setting boundaries and what all of that meant? How I could deal with those kind of crisis situations when, you know, life gives you an unexpected punch in the face and you don't know what's happening and you get overwhelmed by emotions and I'll just relapse. How could I deal with those emotionally intense situations? And then lastly, just learning what my emotions were. I didn't have any for, you know, like 20 years, so I didn't understand what they even were or why I even had them. And then when I went into training to become a counsellor and I discovered dialectical behavioural therapy, which covers these exact four areas of mindfulness. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy, (laughs) isn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. And I learned, like I said, about the mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, emotional regulation. A huge light bulb went off and I thought, where was this when I needed it? Um, and <laughs> I thought, I wish I had this when I started. It would have been so much easier. So, and it compressed really all of those years into weeks. So, what I did is I then studied on top of my degree to uh, specialize in dialectical behavioral therapy. And I started to crystallize my skills and I built my online recovery program over 12 weeks based on DBT therapy to then take people through this program and now I've helped people from people who just drink too much of the weekend to clients doing multiple grams of cocaine a day and that's sort of where I'm at in the here and now I have the 12-week program and I help clients yeah wow there are so many things in your story that stood out to me and some things that we've you know, talked about, I would say maybe kind of in the abstract on our podcast before, like, especially when it comes to motion regulation, we talk about how, you know, it's so common for people to grow up in a household where any kind of emotional expression is not okay. And you said that for yourself, like the only emotional expression that was okay was anger, anything else, not okay, not allowed. And it really like what I take from your story, which I haven't really I guess, truly thought about it this way before, but is that like using drugs, that was your, that was your emotion regulation. (laughs) Like that was the way that you were attempting to regulate your emotions um, was like, whenever you felt something, 
you would turn to, you know, yeah, a, a drug or or something else to just be like, oh, okay, I'm feeling something. This is a problem. Let me let me suppress it. Like, you know, I think that's so common for so many people, whether it's turning to drugs or to food or to so many different things when you do have, as you put it, like that blueprint from childhood of like, you're not supposed to feel or express any signs of quote unquote weakness or vulnerability. So anytime you're feeling that way, you just do something so you don't feel that anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and like you say, that's why I found DBT so fascinating because it gives you the tools to regulate your emotions. And that happens a lot in addiction. We don't know how to regulate our emotions. Uh, so we use drinking drugs just to suppress everything because we just haven't been given the tools. And, you know, that's how I kind of learned about it. And like I say, when that light bulb went off, I was like, wow, this is what I need to know. And this is what a lot of the time I, I sort of cultivated without knowing what it was. So it just made sense to kind of build a program around it. So like these four areas are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you said you learned about DBT once you were in training to become a counselor, and now you've developed this 12-week online program. Um, can you give us like an overview of what's involved in the 12-week program? Like if somebody signed up for that, what would they be getting? Is it like a crash course in DBT? Does it give some other skills just what's that program like yeah so it's based on yeah the four modules of dbt and we spend three weeks on each uh module um and the way it works is it's done one-to-one -one, so it's just me and my clients or a counselor and the client um on a one-to-one -one basis and we spend uh, i guess it's kind of like an integrative model we spend some of the time going over the client and what they're feeling and what's going on for them and really understanding their thought processes and their emotions and then we have a look at one of the skills um, whether that be mindfulness or interpersonal effectiveness what we're going over that week and then we'll have a look at how that skill integrates into the client's life so just take for example you know we have three parts of our mind we have the reasonable mind which is cool rational task focus we have the emotional mind which is hot mood dependent emotionally focused then the wise mind, which is the wisdom within each person and the balance between the middle. And oftentimes I find clients are kind of leaning towards one or the other, um, or maybe they're super rational at work and then super emotional at home, or maybe they thought they were rational, but when they see the model, they're actually, wait a minute, I'm quite emotional. And normally yeah. <laughs> there's some kind of, it's out of whack, there's no kind of balance. They get very hot mood dependent, and especially when they drink and use drugs, they're, they're not being rational at all uh, because it's not rational. They're just based on emotions and they just go and use drugs. So that's kind of the starting point. So we'll have a talk about that and they'll learn some of the psychoeducational information to understand, okay, how can I balance this out? What does this look like for the client? What's really going on in their life? Where do they live? And I guess for the audience listening, thinking about where do you live? Are you more emotionally focused? Are you more reasonably minded and task focused and logical? And how can you find more of the middle balance? And one thing I advise clients is I always ask about their family and say, you know, where do you think your family live? And nine times out of ten, one of the, if they're emotionally focused, one of them, people around them will be reasonably minded. And I'll say to them, okay, it's quite hard to think how you don't think because you're emotionally minded. Um, so how about you think, what would John say? Um, what would John say to you when he's in the reasonable mind and how can you then balance that approach into your thinking so you can then act in a more wise-minded position and find that balance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up wise mind because in, in my opinion anyways, wise mind is the foundation of everything else with DBT. When Kate and I started this podcast, um, that was the very first skill we, we spoke about. When we lead our groups with people, we teach that skill. That's the first skill we talk about in every single group because it's so foundational. So I love that that's really where you start with your clients as well, is really looking at where they hang out between emotion mind or reasonable mind and trying to take it from there in terms of finding this wise mind place. Because I mean, you know, I just think about 12-step programs and that kind of a thing, but this idea of having a higher power 
is so important in recovery for people. And yeah, some people identify that higher power as God, um, but other people, you know, they can identify that higher power as like their wise mind. Um, and so helping people access that like right away seems so crucial to everything else that would come after that for their healing. Yeah, no, exactly. Like you say, that wise mind is foundational and it just gives them that kind of focus to head for how am I behaving, what's off, and that kind of um, internal barometer to sort of notice where their behaviour is. And I guess also laying that on top of the other uh, mindfulness skills of being aware of your mind, being aware of what's happening, observing and describing your reality can be helpful because a lot of times we've been using drugs and drinking for so long, we're not really aware of what's going on, we're just stressed and we get home and then that's that, we're just drinking these drugs, not really aware of it, just kind of sleeping awake, going through the motions. So being yeah. able to really be aware of the process definitely helps. Um, and one of the scripts I always remember, I think it's from describing in mindfulness, is, you know, when you do X, I feel Y, my thoughts are Z. Mm. Or when X occurs, my thoughts are Y and my feelings are Z. And just breaking mm-hmm. it down, people go, oh, okay, that makes sense. So something is happening in the external world I lost a client I'm feeling anxious about money and what's happening and my thoughts are what if I don't get another client for example Um, that could just be a simple model to understand and also to communicate to other people um, that are around them how are you feeling what's going on rather than just not explaining your experience just breaking that down helps Mm-hmm. Yeah, just having that moment to pause and just notice it in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as if you weren't cool enough already, um, <laughs> you have your own podcast called The Conscious Podcast. And I'm really curious to learn also just more about what your podcast is like. Does it, I, I'm imagining anyways, it focuses on people in recovery and helping people get to a place of healing with with whatever addiction they may be struggling with. Um, but yeah, when did you start the podcast? And um, yeah, just what what are your podcast episodes like for people who may want to tune in and listen to you there? Yeah, okay, awesome. Um, well, yeah, they can find the podcast at insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash addiction dash podcast. But also, and it's on iTunes, of course, where you may be listening to this, but Mm -hmm. the podcast started when I was at uni. And when I was at uni and first started to go to Al-Anon meetings and NA meetings and stuff like that, I really kind of resonated with what a lot of people were sharing. But it was kind of confidential to the rooms. You can't really share it outside. And I thought, you know, I really want to help people and I want to be able to get these messages that I'm finding so valuable out to different audiences. So I started a podcast, I think the first guest was my brother, Um, so you can go back and watch (laughs) that one, um, just to sort of get a feel for it, and uh, he's obviously been through addiction as well. So it was interesting just to kind of start off listening to people's stories, and now it's kind of evolved even more, so we speak to experts um, who can tell us how to think uh, and control uh, our drink and drug use, and get loads of insights from them, and I also wanted to speak to relatives who are hurt by the ripples of addiction um i guess similar to me i have a foot in both camps i'm an addict and you know um and uh, you know my mum was an addict as well so i think that's important as well the the consequences of the family members and a lot of you know the addicts go into treatment but the family members have a difficult time too so also shining a light on that side of addiction so it really covers the three different types of people in the addiction world and I just really enjoy enjoy sort of talking to everyone um, and just learning from everyone's experience. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love that for a couple of reasons. I mean, what we we definitely have some listeners who have reached out to us and told us that how they found DBT was because they were participating in like an intensive outpatient program for their own addiction. And so they had to go to a DBT group as part of their recovery. Um, And that's how they found it. But I also really like that you mentioned that your podcast is geared towards the loved ones. Um, And as you said it, uh, you know, you have a foot in both camp. You've struggled with addiction, but of course, with your mom in particular and other family members like your brother, you know, you've, you've been the loved one 
with them struggling with addiction. Um, for myself, I haven't talked about this too much on the podcast, um, but I was in a previous relationship with someone who was struggling with alcohol addiction. So I can relate a little bit to that being more in the in the loved one's realm. So I like that you cover all those bases in your podcast and hear from lots of different people because, you know, addiction affects so much more, of course, than just the addict themselves. It it affects everyone who is close to them, too. And and the loved ones need just as much help as the addict. <laughs> um, so, yeah. No, yeah. exactly. And like you say, it's good to have that kind of whole overview and just to yeah, talk to everyone. Um, I just find it just really interesting and valuable to give that um, advice and guidance to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if we if we bring it back to talk about DBT, and you were already doing a really nice job of just kind of bringing this up organically about how, um, you know, mindfulness is so important with sobriety, finding wise mind, which is within the realm of mindfulness is so important with sobriety. Are there any other like key dbt skills that you find tend to be really helpful for people who are working on their sobriety in terms of maintaining it long term or just in those early stages of initially getting sober in addition to the mindfulness skills like certain go-to skills that you tend to really like in teaching people about um how they can use dbt to get sober yeah no, definitely. So in the mindfulness uh, skills, we spoke about the different states of mind, but there's also generally kind of meditation, and meditation is awesome. Just that idea of being an observer of your mind and being more present in the here and now. And I guess just even the sense of mindfulness to change habits. So habits are formed of a cue, a routine, and a reward. And I find by taking clients through the journey of learning mindfulness, they can break the current routine that they're in and the current sort of habit that they're in, and which is they have some kind of cue, some kind of distress in their life, some kind of emotional upset in the here and now or reminded from the past. Then they have a routine of using drugs and drinking. Then they have a reward of feeling less distress. So in order to change that habit in the, you know, and in order to change the habit, it's important to change the routine so they gain their mindfulness, they recognise a cue, oh, I'm feeling stressed, oh, this is happening. Then they can change the routine and understand just because I'm thinking about using a drink or drug doesn't mean that I have to. An action, a thought does not equal an action or decision. It's just a yeah. thought in my mind. And having that sense of being an observer of our mind can really help clients change that routine. And then it comes into a lot of the self-soothing stuff um, that people can do to have different routines. And also that sense of being able to come back to the five senses. So being able to understand what's going on in my environment. What can I taste? What can I see? What can I hear? What's actually happening? And by using that as an anchor in daily life, it can be like, right, I'm driving home from work. I had a shit day. I'm thinking about, you know, getting a couple of bottles of wine on the way home from work. So using the mindfulness, recognising, okay, I'm thinking about getting some bottles of wine. Um, and then breaking that sort of, uh, recognising the cue, breaking the habit by changing the routine of coming back to the mind, focusing on your senses, listening to the sound of the radio, observing what you're doing when you're driving, observing nature. As you get out of the car and walk home, noticing the sun on your face or the rain, if you're in England, um, on, on your face and understanding. <laughs> I'm in Seattle. <laughs> we get lots of rain here. <laughs> no, exactly. But just really coming back to your senses and being aware of what's happening can help ground you in the moment and calm the busy mind down from going off and thinking about drinking and using drugs and really help you sort of change the behaviour. And then you can think of what different routines can I do and I spoke about the self-soothing, again, thinking about different smells and different self-soothing things you can do, having a nice bath with nice candles, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and really grounding yourself so your mind's not going off thinking about all of you know the wine and engaging in willpower and all that kind of stuff. And it really takes out of the equation and helps clients change their behaviour. So that sense of mindfulness is one definite go-to tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I wish Kate was here because one of Kate's all-time favorite dbt skills um is that she loves self-soothing with the five senses um and she talks about bats all the time <laughs> when we lead dbt groups and and I, it's great how you're talking about it because you know again there's kind of this general idea within like a 12-step 
model of like, you know, one day at a time, one moment at a time sort of a thing. But but mindfulness is the the roadmap to that. Like when we're practicing mindfulness and as you talked about it, like just really coming back to, yeah, what am what am I thinking about? What am I feeling? What's the urge? Okay, and then how can I just tune into like what's around me right now? Um, it's so it's so helpful because it's so easy for us to just generally get stressed and overwhelmed by thinking about what's what's ahead, what's happening tomorrow, <laughs> what could be happening a week from now. And it's just so grounding to come back to like, this is where I'm at. This is what's happening around me. How, you know, how can I just be present with with this right now? It makes things feel a lot more manageable, in my opinion. Yeah. No, exactly. And more manageable is the ideal situation in a sense to have that sense of manageability, uh, not necessarily control because we can't control our emotions, but we can certainly manage them. And Mm -hmm. I guess another big skill would be um, emotional regulation. You know, like I say, I didn't even understand I had emotions. Um, And then when I looked at DBT and I realised, wait a minute, there are reasons I have emotions. They exist for a reason. Who would have thought that? No one taught me this in school. (laughs) Um, So really understanding, okay, is my emotion trying to motivate me for some kind of action? Is my emotion trying to communicate to myself, communicate to someone else? What is the emotion Mm -hmm. that I'm feeling? And then it's easier to communicate that. And then to understand two critical questions I always teach clients is my favorite sayings is you know is it fact or is it feeling and just the idea Mm -hmm. of checking Mm -hmm. does the emotion fit the facts is it something from the past you're projecting onto the present is it something that you're just uh, feeling or making up in your own mind Uh, or is it really the facts about the situation I guess it comes back to the very beginning of the wise mind emotional mind and reasonable mind is it more reasonable minded okay, these are the facts, or is it just the emotional mind going off on one, you know, making up all of these feelings that may be valid, but just then may not be effective. And I guess that's when it comes into the second question is, does the emotion fit the facts is the first, and the second is, is it effective to act on the emotion? The the emotion may be reasonable, but it may not be effective to act on the emotion, so we need to problem solve it. If someone annoys me, you know, punching them in the face is not an effective response to someone annoying me, although the emotion may be valid depending on the context of the situation. So it may fit the fact, but it's still not effective. So those kind of main questions can be insanely valuable to start to understand Mm. why do we have emotions and then how do we kind of act on them or not act on them and process them as they go on so we don't need to use drugs and drink based on our emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just hit on something that's so major of, you know, Kate and I, exactly as you put it, the way that we phrase it sometimes is like feelings are not facts. Um, and to help people be able to see like, okay, my feelings are not facts. And also, you know, what are my feelings trying to tell me? And that doesn't mean to just dismiss them or tell my feelings that they're wrong or bad. It's really being able to hold space for, for yeah, as you put it, like being able to first notice and feel the feeling and then to be able to check it with the facts of the current situation. And when people are able to get to a place where they can do both those things, I mean, that's that's such a game changer, truly, when people can get there. It takes a lot of work, a lot of practice, but when people can get there and get get into the habit of doing that, um, yeah, that's life-changing stuff right there. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, the program that I run is 12 weeks and it's not the longest program. There are some DBT programs that are about, you know, a year, if not, if not longer. Um, mm-hmm. And but if you think about the, compa- the comparison, say rehab or something like that, um, it's kind of I find that middle ground. And I also mm-hmm. like to set a goal for clients that seems reasonable. Um, and once they kind of learn these skills and go through the program and they start to get a handle on their emotions and their emotional regulation and they're starting to anchor them in and sort of make them sort of, you know, uh, con- unconscious and even consciously competent, um, then it starts to make a bit more sense. And then from there, a lot of clients can go and look at some of the past and what's been going on and some of the trauma in their life and stuff like that. But I find, you know, once the client has got a handle on their drink and drug use and they've learned the tools to manage their emotions, then it's a good idea to start looking at all the trauma and stuff like that. But I feel like if you start going into someone's past and all the trauma, 
before they've got any tools, the only tool they've got is drinking. So, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen? They're just going to drink loads more because you're bringing up all of this stuff for them. So I do find it useful to kind of build the mental foundation of all of these tools and then start to work more long-term with clients when they choose to to look at some of the more uh, other stuff that's going on underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point that you just made because... Sometimes, you know, I, I've certainly seen this with my work with clients, whether whether it is with addiction to like drugs or alcohol or whether it's with, I don't know, say and something that doesn't have quite as strong of a hold on them, but just something that they're wanting to change in their life. They have this moment where they're like, oh, my gosh, I really struggle with this. I want to stop using that or <laughs> I want to make this change. But because they don't have, as you were just touching on the tools in place to like keep themselves safe they try to like rush into it and they just think they can just stop the behavior without doing the emotional (laughs) work that comes along with that and then it backfires almost immediately where it's like you know there's like okay so i've seen that i'm drinking too much i'm just gonna stop Um, And even if they are able to successfully stop for a time, (laughs) yeah, it it just so much other stuff gets stirred up. All that trauma, like you were saying. And um, yeah, it's so important to make sure you have a foundation of skills and things to, you know, keep you emotionally safe when you let go of that thing that has been regulating your emotions for so long, whether you realize it or not. You need some other things at the ready. (laughs) Yeah. That's so important. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's kind of the downside to willpower is I can have all the willpower in the world to kind of hang on to a ledge. But if you come back in two days, I'm not going to be there. And that's just because willpower has a time limit. It's not infinite resource. We will eventually run out of better willpower. But when you kind of change behavior based on the true routine and reward and change the routines for people, it helps. And like you say, when you then look at not only changing the behavior, but some of the emotions and stuff that are going on underneath, that can be a really sort of effective approach in creating long-term change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder too, since we did mention it earlier when we were talking about your podcast and how you know you really try to touch on stuff for the loved ones, maybe that could be something for us to talk a little bit about too. You know, you touched on some of the skills that are really helpful for the person who is struggling with the addiction and working on getting sober. You know the mindfulness, emotion regulation, self-soothing, all of that. What are some DBT skills that you think could be good go-to skills for people who are on the other side? Like, I think about for myself, what, um, just if I had to kind of classify it into DBT skills, like what kind of helped me when I was in that relationship with my partner who was struggling with alcohol use, like it really was probably a lot of, like radical acceptance <laughs> and um, and some fast stuff as well, because at least I can speak for myself being a, a loved one at one point in time. It's like, you know, it's hard to be able to stick to your own values and to stand up for yourself. And um, that's so tricky when so much of your time and energy can be spent on wanting to just not have the person you love use (laughs) that you lose sight of yourself so i mean for me those are probably two big skills were radical acceptance and fast that were helpful for me Um, but i don't know if you have other ideas of what you would recommend for people who are who are loved ones in terms of how how they can take care of themselves when they love someone who's using yeah, and I think you touched on it there, that sense of radical acceptance. You know, fighting reality doesn't change reality. And that just idea that it is hard to accept reality because we don't always want it to be the way it is. We don't want the person to drink. We don't want them to be, you know, drunk before Christmas and miss the whole of Christmas. We don't want them to yeah. just be drunk and not wake up on time or not be able to take them to that event just in case they get too drunk. And that is hard to accept um, and it's hard to accept the reality that they are drunk or that they are sort of in this madness. And yeah, that's really difficult, but come into a place of acceptance. And again, one thing that sticks out to me is what acceptance is not. So acceptance is not yeah. approval. Acceptance is not condoning their behaviour. It's not against change. Um, and it's not you know, even compassion necessarily. And 
accepting it's just saying okay they are asleep it is christmas morning i'm not condoning their behavior i'm not approving it. i'm not letting go of their consequences i'm just accepting the facts that they're not going to get up and that christmas as our plan is not going to happen which is really sad mm-hmm. but once you accept that place um you can then move on and decide to set boundaries and you know make informed decisions so that is mm-hmm. probably one of the main things and the second thing would be in terms of yeah what would it be so in terms of mindfulness being aware of what state of mind they're coming from are they being more reasonable minded yeah. emotional minded um and how to have that kind of balance and make more wise minded decisions the other thing that sticks out would be you know self-validation and self-respect what self-invalidating beliefs are you telling yourself or are they telling you that just aren't true and recognizing what they are if they fit if they make sense um and sort of coming from you know building that sense of confidence and self-love from within and recognizing okay they were just drunk they said all of this bad stuff which wasn't helpful and it was really hurtful but i'm not externally validated i'm internally validated i'm going to remind myself um of you know how awesome i am not from a place of kind of ego i'm so brilliant but just in the sense that you know the rational mind it comes back i'm stuck in the emotional mind of feeling disappointed of feeling hurt or feeling like um i'm you know being uh showered out or spoken into in ways i don't like and again accepting that not condoning it not you know being against change accepting it and then going okay i'm going to look at my uh internally validating beliefs as to from the reasonable mind as to what things i'm doing good okay i'm setting boundaries i'm not enabling them they're still kicking back and being drunk but i'm doing the right thing i am being reasonably minded you know and just sort of having that sense of um inner strength and inner balance within themselves yeah finding that inner strength is so important and so key to like let yourself off the hook of really reminding yourself that like you are not responsible for their behavior um because it's so easy to get caught in that way of thinking you know if i just do this differently then they won't drink you know (laughs) that that kind of an idea and just to really let as hard as it is to like let that go um so that it frees you up to start being able to pay more attention to what your needs are and how to take care of yourself. Yeah. yeah super yeah. important. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's really hard. Like you say, to understand it's not your fault. Again, even as a kid looking back in therapy, I always had the questions, why did mum drink? You know, what What if I'd have loved her more? What if she'd have loved me more? I didn't understand why this happened. And even when I was a 10-year-old kid, there would have been some understanding that something was wrong. And there certainly was times when she was drunk and stuff like that um and really sort of learning that as an adult um i guess i learned a lot of that through my own journey of addiction of understanding it's not about anyone else it's about them um or it's about it was about me and my own journey no one could tell me anything no one could stop me and i was just going to head towards death just like my mum unless something changed unless i had that sense of acceptance to make the change and make the progress so I guess it's difficult and it's difficult and hard not to um, feel some sense of what could I do differently in a sense um, yeah. and to have that mindfulness to to stay re- reasonably minded and go it's not my fault in a sense and this is what I can do to help maintain those boundaries and help not enable them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure you know all too well from personal experience and working with as many people as you've worked with, you know, the road to recovery is not, <laughs> it's not this straight path. It's not this straight line. Um, and, and one other thing that I was curious about that maybe you can touch on a little bit is like when people experience a relapse, which is so common in the recovery journey, um, what do you tell the people that you work with or how do you help people bounce back from that what what in your experience seems to be most helpful with regaining sobriety after a relapse happens yeah so i think there's kind of different types of relapses in a sense so there's a kind of relapse when we're first in recovery and we're trying to change our behavior and then we kind of um yeah don't succeed and then we have to keep trying and stuff like that and then there's the sort of longer term i've been in recovery for a while and i sort of go back to drinking or using 
and I guess we'll, we'll go through each one. But the first one, or the main idea for both of them, is not beating yourself up. Um, again, easier said than done. Easy for me to sit on a podcast and say, don't beat yourself up. Um, <laughs> but again, to, uh, the practicality of how to do that, and that's one thing I love about DBT, is the practicality. And that is to think about the wise mind and the emotional mind and the reasonable mind. Think about you know how well you've done. And when clients are in early recovery and they're just try, uh, kind of changing the behaviour, I'll just remind them that, you know, I don't condone their drinking. I don't sort of want them to keep drinking, but they're learning to change behaviour. They're not going to be perfect every time. But I always say to them, be aware. Use that sense of mindfulness. What is happening? Is it really meeting your needs? Because when people look at it and they wake up in their own sick and they're causing a nightmare and they're destroying everyone around them, it doesn't meet their needs. It doesn't even make sense. It's complete insanity. But we're just stuck in that sort of tunnel vision. So being aware of that, oh, okay, it doesn't meet my needs. Here's what we can do to change the behaviour. Here's the other things that work. And these are the other things and other routines we can do to change that behaviour and to sort of keep coming back um, to therapy and keep working on that and not be hard on themselves and just change their behaviour. And I always remind clients, you know, when we first learn to walk, and we fall over when we're like one, two years old. We don't go, actually, I'm not going to learn to walk. This isn't for me. I'm just going to crawl for the rest of my life and just sit here and do nothing. We just keep trying over and over again. It's just part of the process. Um, and then we learn to walk and then we learn to run and then we can run marathons. Um, so it's just interesting to understand that. But then when clients are kind of, you know, in longer term sobriety, and then they relapse. Normally that's, um, again, generally speaking, because they've sort of stopped applying some of the skills they got. Again, DBT actually goes into this about the clear mind and the clean mind um, and when and the addict mind. And when we're in the addict mind, we're in that kind of chaos we're sort of using and drinking and using drugs. But when we're in the clean mind, we're able we're then sort of a bit naive we're taking risk we're maybe not meditating every day we're letting stuff slip we're not really doing anything so emotional stuff are building up that we're not really checking in with oh that'll be all right i'm okay now i'm not drinking and then we're kind of taking risks oh i could just have one and that sort of thinking starts to creep in then we're at a friend's wedding and we're like oh i can celebrate with champagne and we're kind of in that clean clean mind taking risks and you know, the addiction just slips one past us and we're like, shit, how did I get back here? And it's just about taking a step back, recognising what's going on and working, going back to therapy or going back to the DBT tools and the worksheets, rereading everything, going through it again and thinking, what tools do I need to pick up? What did I let go of? And what emotions have built up, you know, in a sense, it's a constant process. Life is always happening. There's ups and downs. There's coronaviruses, all of this kind of stuff that we just can't apprehend. There's three-month lockdowns. There's all the stuff that happens. So just kind of maintaining that, your, your sort of mental solid foundation and your mental health can be really good to sort of stay on top of things to sort of help with relapsing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I hear you touching on like the importance of having... Uh, a routine of some, of some kind as like this anchor, you know, whether it's calling a, a sponsor or someone else who's in recovery or whether it's, you know, meditating, you know, every day or every other day or whatever it is, like having something to ground you when the chaos of life is swirling, <laughs> that like that's the biggest thing that helps with, you know, recovering after a relapse happens because as you said, that's probably been slipping prior to the relapse taking place and then also being able to just in terms of maintaining recovery for the long term that that's that that's what it really takes is something to ground you and keep you centered amidst all the changes that can happen in life Um, because it's so easy to get thrown off (laughs) yeah no exactly Mm -hmm. yeah perfect all right well um you mentioned also earlier this will probably be the last thing that i ask you and then i mean feel free to add on anything else that you want to say that i that i didn't touch on um in questions that i asked or things like that but um what are some resources that you recommend for clients who are maybe just in the early stages of sobriety or who are kind of recognizing for themselves hey i may be 
struggling with this, whether it's, yeah, drugs or alcohol or gambling or porn or food or I don't know, whatever it is, um, what are like some books that you might recommend? Or, I mean, we have your podcast as a resource too now. If there's other podcasts, um, just a couple tidbits of like, hey, these would be good go-to things if you're new to recovery. Yeah. So there's tons and tons of awesome books out there. Um, I reckon uh, recommend any by kind of Pia Melody, also Gabriel Marte. Mm -hmm. um, you can Google those. Um, how to kind of um, the the stages of change is also a really good one. All those kind of books. Also, um, yeah, going on the website, we run a free support group, so that's a good place to start, um, and they can go to that. Also, yeah, we have a blog, and like you mentioned, our own podcast. Um, but I also like to point people in the direction of a free ebook I offer, which is called, um, you know, Foundational Tools. And they can get that inside addiction.co.uk forward slash foundation. And that really Perfect. goes through, you know, seven foundational and practical tools they can instantly implement. And it teaches them, you know, the number one skill to shift their state of mind, even when they wake up feeling sad or in a negative mindset you know, how to start rewiring their brain around anxiety and unhooking from worry, you know, how to use different techniques to get a relief from their dark thoughts and lessen the power that those thoughts hold over them, and how to actually use therapy properly, how to stop self-sabotaging their relationships, even if they're attached to what other people think. So they can get a lot of value from the ebook, and it's just free to download um, at that link inside addiction.co.uk forward slash foundation. And that's just a good place to start to sort of get the ball rolling, get a few things they can use in the habit, cue, routine, uh, yeah, cue, routine, reward cycle to sort of start to make that change. Yeah, awesome. I love that. And we have um, a Facebook group where we'll be definitely making sure to post your website so people can go on there and um, look at all those things you mentioned with your ebook and that they can find your podcast and. And, and you mentioned a free support group as well. So that's that's all awesome stuff. So we'll make sure to be posting that in our Facebook group for sure. Um, so yeah, I guess any other final thoughts before we before we wrap up here? Anything else that you want to get in at the last minute? <laughs> um, just one quote that really sticks out to me, I guess, that I always used to remind myself when people are in those dark times, um, which is what I used to repeat to myself over and over, which is, you haven't been buried, you've been planted. And sometimes it really feels like we're under the soil and everything's dark and lonely and isolated and we just feel at the bottom. And just reminding yourself, you've been planted, you're going to keep working on yourself and you're going to sprout up above the ground. And I know it's a bit cheesy, but that's just what I used to repeat to myself over and over again. You know, you will get past this. Your No emotion lasts forever. You can change and grow, keep going on and pushing through and you'll get above the soil. I love that. I don't think that's cheesy at all. <laughs> Personally, I mean, hearing you say that just now, it's like, wow, I, that, that's helpful. Because cause I think especially just with, um, you know, I don't know, I've gone through some things personally this year. And I think just with coronavirus and <laughs> everything, I mean, I think there is such that feeling for people of like, this is just a dark season of life for many people for many various reasons. Um, and to just have that reminder, um, I love that. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So it's time for some awkward self-promotion. Yippee. Um, so first and foremost, um, I'm going to be shouting out Yulini, who recently donated to our Patreon. So thank you so much, Yulini for contributing and if you want to contribute like Yulini did you can go to patreon.com slash dbt and me um, also be sure to check out our Etsy shop so etsy.com and searching for dbt and me when you are on there if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating write us a review um, last but not least uh, send us emails dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com especially if you guys have feedback about this episode um, anything that Luke shared we'll definitely be forwarding those on to him if you guys have any positive feedback you want to pass on <laughs> so send us emails let us know um, how you're using this stuff especially if you are in recovery yourself we want to know how all this is going for you with using dbt as part of your recovery 
Um, so now we're going to get settled in for closing moment. As you guys may have already figured out, since Kate's not here, I'm going to be doing closing moment today. Um, and so this closing moment, I'll give a little preamble before I get into it. So I call this closing moment um, love, acceptance, grace. And it's a meditation that... Um, I learned from my therapist. It's a great meditation to do first thing in the morning to start your day. Um, but it's something that you can pause and do at any time throughout your day when you need to. All right. So have you guys get settled in closing your eyes if you feel comfortable doing so. And... Just taking a moment to notice your breath. You don't have to do anything different to make it deeper, slower, just feeling it as it is in this moment. And first, I'm going to have you guys think about this word, love. Bringing to mind who you may encounter as you go through your day. Whether that be co-workers you see when you're at work. Family members, a partner, or roommates that you live with. This could even be the cashier at the grocery store if you have some grocery shopping to do later. Just thinking about the people who you are likely going to encounter during your day. And start to envision yourself showing love to them. Showing kindness. Having your actions spread positivity as you move through the world. And just spend a moment here thinking about how you can embrace and show love. And next, moving on to acceptance. There are things in our lives that we may not like, that we may struggle to accept. Things that we may have a willful attitude towards And giving yourself a moment to feel willingness come over you. Thinking about how you can accept these things just as they are. Just allowing these difficult situations in your life to just be and imagining yourself having an attitude of acceptance towards them. And finally, thinking about grace. Having grace with ourselves means having an attitude of patience and understanding. Maybe there are some things that you are worried about, 
criticizing yourself for. And instead, take a moment to think about how you can show grace towards yourself. How you can speak to yourself in a loving way. Giving yourself validation and encouragement for doing your best. And finally, just repeating to yourself, may I show love to others. May I accept things just as they are. May I show myself grace. And now you may notice your attention going back to your breath, just as it was when we started this closing moment. Just noticing your breath for a few cycles of breathing in and breathing out. may start to have some movement return to your body through rolling your wrists or your ankles and when you're ready you may open your eyes thank you so much everyone and thank you so much Luke for being here today we really appreciate it thank you very much it was wonderful awesome thanks guys to learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.